You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. So today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And here's the main point for today. It's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. It's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. So if you've been gone or if you're new here today, I want to just bring you up to speed in terms of the sermon series we've been doing for the last few weeks in the life of King David. Okay, let me bring you up to speed. Just review Give you context as you listen to what God's word says. So there's this guy named Saul, and God's people asked for a king, and Saul was given to them as king. And Saul failed, ultimately. He didn't trust God in, 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 by faith to believe what he said. And God rejected him as the leader of God's covenant people. And the story of the life of David that we're looking at in the next few months starts with the prophet Samuel coming and anointing David, even as a young man, as the future king of Israel. And David's anointing says he will be king, but at this point in where we are in the Bible, he's not yet king, okay? But God has clearly said, authoritatively, David is going to be the guy. And Saul knows that David has been uniquely blessed by God. And that God is, God's spirit is empowering David in unique, very unique ways. And so as we've seen the last few weeks, Saul literally goes crazy. He has insane jealousy in his heart, which leads to fear of losing what he wants. Okay? Saul doesn't trust God and God's word and God's plan. And so what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands and seeks to have David murdered many times and in different ways. And he fails each time. The Bible says over and over again that the Lord is with David. But as a result of all these attempted murders, Where we're going to find David today, on the run. He's a fugitive. He's on the run. Why? Because the enemy of God is trying to kill God's anointed king. The enemy of God is trying to kill God's anointed king. Now, that's the storyline of the whole Bible in micro form. The enemy of God is trying to kill God's anointed king. But here's the good news that we're going to look at in our story today, in our text for today, is that David has a faithful friend. David has a faithful friend. His name is Jonathan. And he happens to be, as, as the story is, you know, is kind of complicated and, and crazy, Jonathan is the son of Saul. Jonathan is the son of the king. And Jonathan, in contrast to his father, trusts God's word. He listens with ears to hear. He trusts God's word about who the true king is. 
And he shows covenant faithfulness to David as the true king. He's a true friend. And the Bible says, Jesus says, that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And we're going to see Jonathan risk his life for the anointed king, for the sake of God's word coming to pass in our text for today. Because the main point today is it's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. Well, let's walk through chapter 20 a little bit here. If you, if you have a Bible, look at chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And all of that context should, should help us understand where we are in chapter 20 here. So we, like, like, like we said, David's on the run. Verse 1, look at it here. It says, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So they have a little conference here as friends. Bringing each other up to speed. Verse 2. And he said to him, far from it. So this is Jonathan talking. Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does um, does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So he's like, I got the inside track. I know what's going on with my father. Crazy soul. And why should my father hide hide this from me? It is not so. But David, he's not so convinced. Look at verse 3. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. So David's just saying, Jonathan, he's keeping this from you. Because he doesn't want there, you know, to be, you know, his plan getting out or that Jonathan is grieved because, because they're friends. But David says, look at verse 3, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, so as true as it gets, there is a step between me and death. So he's like, I'm rightly so on the run. Your dad wants to kill me. Verse 4, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. All right, so David's on the run. Rightly so, Saul's tried to kill him multiple times. Furious jealousy on Saul's part, like we talked about last week, making him crazy. Jonathan and David meet up, discuss the situation. Jonathan says, not that serious. David says, ah, brother, I think it is serious. Your dad really wants to kill me. Jonathan basically says, all right, what what do you need from me? How can I serve you? I'll do what you need to help you. So here's what they do. They come up with a plan, okay? To figure out for sure if there's any chance that David can stop being on the run and return. And I'm going to just do some more summarizing like I've done the last few weeks because the text is so long. So this is just what happens next. This is a summary of verses 5 through 11. So here's the plan they come up with. Sounds like they, they used to always have dinner together. Saul and Jonathan and David and maybe a few others. But David says to Jonathan, here's what we'll do. I'm not going to show up for three days in a row at dinner time, Okay. And here's what I want you to do, Jonathan. I want you to gauge how your dad, the king, feels about me not showing up. If he doesn't really mind 
then we know it's probably safe for me to come back. But if he freaks out, then that's an indication that I truly have my life on the line here. And for the sake of my preservation as anointed king, I'm not going to return. So Jonathan agrees to this and agrees to let David know how Saul reacts. But there's another problem. The problem is communication. How are they going to go about communicating with each other in terms of the results of this test? Because for all they know, Jonathan could be followed and watched by Saul's men. Saul is going crazy. He wants David and he wants him dead. How's Jonathan going to tell David the result of this test that they come up with? So summary of verses 12 through 17, (coughs) they come up with some details for communication with each other. But before they get into like the nitty gritty of these details of how to communicate with each other, they have this very beautiful covenant renewal kind of ceremony, right? Now, covenant is a Bible word, and that might be new language for you. We don't use that a lot in in modern English. But what a covenant is, biblically speaking, is an agreement based on a loving relationship. A covenant is an agreement based on a loving relationship. Covenant is different than a contract. Contract is just an agreement. We may not love each other. We may not be friends. We may not be family. That's a contract. But a covenant is an agreement based on a loving relationship. And that's what they have. They love each other deeply as brothers, as friends. And here's why the covenant is so important. Here's how we have to climb into the world of the text a little bit. In the ancient world, when a new king would be installed he would oftentimes basically slaughter the whole family of the former king. Just, I'm going to put down in dramatic fashion any potential rebellion against my new kingship. That was a tradition. And so basically, Saul, or I'm sorry, Jonathan and David swear to one another that that's not going to happen. Okay, David's going to become king. Jonathan knows that. And, and he says, David, swear to me that this won't happen. David says, That's, that will not happen. And Jonathan swears his allegiance to King David. So they have this little covenant renewal ceremony. Let's look at the exact text here. Look at verse 13 through verse 17. <clears throat> But should it please my father to do you harm, this is Jonathan speaking, he speaks in the third person here a little bit, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. So Jonathan's just saying, if if Saul freaks out, I'm going to tell you so that you can be safe. Verse 14, if I am still alive after you become king, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, Jonathan says. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Implication, when you become king. Verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again 
by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, sometimes it's just easy to gloss over these details in the Bible, but think about how amazing this is. Think about how this speaks to the Spirit of God alive in Jonathan. See, Jonathan didn't have to act this way. See, in the strictest sense, remember, Jonathan is supposed to be king. He's the son of the king, right? The kingdom should have been given to him. And Jonathan knew this. Jonathan could have been maneuvering, manipulating, politicking, scheming, but he doesn't. Why? Why? Because he trusted God's word by faith. Because he believed God's revealed word. Jonathan's thinking, God said it, so I'm going to do it. He trusted God's revealed word through the prophet Samuel that David will be king. Jonathan didn't resist God's word. He humbly accepted God's word and the implications that it had for him. He didn't rage with furious jealousy like like his father, like Saul. He trusted God's word concerning God's anointed king. He didn't resist. He didn't question. He received God's word with humility. Now think about this. There's a lot of intersections here with our own discipleship. You feel that? Like in the short term for Jonathan, did it make his life easier? See, trusting God's word didn't make Jonathan's life easier, as we're going to see in a second, in the short term. Like following God and his word, trusting God and his word, oftentimes doesn't make our lives easier either in the short term. Sometimes it makes it harder in the short term. But this is what it means to have faith, right? Meaning I will trust God even when it's hard. That trusting him will pay off even when it's very uncomfortable. Like that's, that's true Christianity. In some ways that's Christianity 101. Belief might not be true belief if we only believe when it's easy. Belief is true belief when you endure when it's really hard. Do do you believe like Jonathan, even when your own father hates your faith? Do you believe when you get cancer? When, When a dear friend betrays you? When your marriage falls apart? when your kids are are painfully wayward, when your finances are in ruins, when God seems to be silent in the face of your pain and struggle. See, we're going to see things get harder for Jonathan. And he's going to pay a short-term price for his faithfulness, for his trust in God, for his belief for his belief that's worth it to suffer for God's anointed king. 
See, ultimately, Dave, or I'm sorry, ultimately, Jonathan, think about it, he has to pick. <clears throat> he has to pick between his dad and David. That's not easy. That's not easy. Even if our parents are crazy, we still, we still love them, right? And, and this kind of thing, the, these hard choices to like, I know God's word and I'm going to receive it. I believe it. But my family's at odds with this. Puts us in really challenging scenarios. Like this kind of thing happens in our world today too. Sometimes faithfulness to God's word means families or households are separated too. This happens in our culture. It's happened in my own extended family to a certain degree, not not to this dramatic scope or scale, but it's happened. It's happened in some of your families, hard choices, being put in what feels like impossible scenarios. We see this in more dramatic fashion in our church plant in Morocco. If you're new, we focus on uh, North Africa, the nation of Morocco, um, Ecuador, and Madison for our church planting endeavors. We desire to be a church planting church. And I encourage you to be on the Pray North Africa channel in Slack so you can get these updates about our church plant there. But this kind of thing, this division of families, it happens way more often when a Muslim converts to Christianity. We've seen this in our church plant there. Where we have a church plant, technically, if you convert to Christianity, it's the death penalty. But that rarely happens in that city, it's usually not martyrdom. What it usually is, is relational rejection. Which is why when a Muslim becomes a Christian, it's a very, very big deal in terms of the cost, usually, more than it is in our culture. So let me explain this real quick. Like when you live in the developing world, not like first world country with first world problems, but like in the city in Morocco where our church plant is, there's way more people that are poor, uneducated, illiterate. And when you're poor, generally speaking, that means you have no money, obviously. You also have no power. So what happens then? What happens then is your relationships become your currency. It makes sense, right? If you have no money, no power, man, I, I can't, the only reason why we can be isolated in our country is because most people are rich by the world standards. Wealth affords you the ability to have isolation. But if you're poor, you need one another just to make it. And that's the context of our, our church plant over there. And so as a result, family is a really big deal. That might be your only sort of currency 
to make it. And so you lose those relationships out of allegiance to God's word and what he's said. You might feel like you have literally nothing. Do you believe God's word enough that losing your family is worth it? Is Jesus, as the revealed word of God, the ultimate word of God, is he worth it? Like, this is the kind of thing that Jonathan faced in, in, is very, very real in our world today in terms of global Christianity. I got to pick between Jesus and my family. And if God's word is true, it's worth it. We don't say it's easy, but it's worth it to pick Jesus to pick Jesus over your family. And that's our point for today. It's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. See, we see this in Jonathan's life in reference to David and his father. See, if he doesn't believe God's, God's revealed word, then it's, the way Jonathan is behaving is foolish. But if God's word is true, and it is, his allegiance to David is 100% warranted. Let's see how the story continues. I'm going to summarize verses 18 through 23. So let's go back to our plan. They have this plan. And the plan goes like this. The details of it are like this. Jonathan's going to go out to a field where David, like kind of think like wilderness area outside the city where David is going to be hiding. And Jonathan is going to take a little boy with him. And they're going to go out to this area where David is hiding. And he's going to shoot some arrows, and he's going to have the little boy go and run and find those arrows. And as the boy is out there looking for arrows, if Jonathan says, with David listening in to like this area where he's hiding, if Jonathan yells to the boy, the arrows are right by where you are, then that means to David, you're safe to come back. If Jonathan shoots the arrows, sends the boy out to get the arrows, and he yells to the boy, the arrows are way beyond you. Keep going. That's a signal to David that it's not safe at all. That you need to stay as a fugitive. You need to stay on the run. So that's their plan. So they enact this plan, okay? Skip dinner. See how Saul reacts. Based on that reaction, we're going to do this plan with the arrows and the little boy going to fetch him. So they, they do it. David skips dinner three days in a row. Well, Saul... He's crafty. He can see through some things. He immediately knows that they're playing him, and he freaks out. And we pick up there at verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me as we see Saul continue to come <clears throat> unglued. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, did I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That's Bible speak for, it's a shame you were even born. It was a shame that your mom even gave birth to you. He's freaking out here. Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? 
But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And, and him evidently too, right? Verse 34. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. This is a disaster, right? This is family horror. Saul's completely unglued, completely unhinged. You don't just have family division here. You have family attempted murder. See, trusting God's word is not always easy or comfortable. There's biblical precedent for this. There are some people that hate God's word so much because it threatens them and their little kingdom of self that they're willing to completely lose their minds and willingly take whatever negative consequences may come that way, may come as a result of that. See, what do we see in Saul? We, We learn sin is never rational. It's always irrational. So then if that's true and it is, The question is not, what do you believe? The question is, what do you want? See, Saul knew that God had spoken about David. He didn't have a problem believing that intellectually. The problem was that he hated it. You with me? The question is not, what do you believe? The question is, what do you want in terms of our discipleship? What do you want the most? What's the true object of your desires, of your affections? See, it's our desires and the scope and extent of our desires that lead us to do crazy things like we see Saul doing here. His desire was maintaining his little kingdom of self, and God's word came and opposed that, right? For many of us, like Saul, when, when, when God's word confronts us, and it always does, God's word comforts us for sure. It instructs us for sure. But at times, it, it, it confronts us as well. It rebukes us. And when God's word confronts us, sometimes we rage, we resist, we go crazy. Maybe it's not external, but at minimum, internal. And so this is why it's so, so important to ask yourself when anger, bitterness, or resentment kind of start to creep up in your heart, when you recognize it in your own heart, to like stop and and ask yourself, like, like Saul should have asked these questions of his own heart. Real simple, what do I want that I'm not getting? And why do I want it so much? It's not that your desires are always bad, but it's the strength of your desires that show us we're in the danger zone. Like, why is this so important to me that if I don't get it, I'm willing to rage or fight or gossip or, in Saul's case, throw a spear, attempted murder of my own son? Like, could it be that if I trusted God for what I want— he would provide. 
or change my desires to become his desires. See, Saul's not doing this. And as a result, he's not self-reflective. He's not asking good, theologically informed, biblical questions of his own heart so that maybe he can counsel himself with God's word. He's rejecting all that. And as a result, his family's fractured. And as the Bible lays out, as the story continues, it looks like he pays the eternal price. So he didn't get it what he wanted. He throws an adult temper tantrum with massive consequences. He didn't stop and ask these hard questions. He didn't stop and ask, are my desires in line with God's revealed word? No, he just hated the fact that what he saw there was, yep, they're not in line, and I don't really care because I want to get what I want. Irrational anger, manipulation, terror. And as a result, Jonathan is forced to lay his life on the line for his, for his trust in God's word about the true king. But it's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. Let me just summarize the rest of the chapter. Jonathan follows the plan that they come up with. He and David agreed upon. He tells the boys that the arrows are beyond him. And so they both know that that's the signal that David's not free to come back. They have this brief time together where they grieve together. They show affection to one another. They weep together. They renew their covenant to one another, and then they depart. And that's how the chapter ends. It's not a perfect, happy little ending. And sometimes on this side of eternity, you don't get a happy ending. Like, it, it, it seems like sometimes persecution or suffering, like Jonathan experiences here, gets the final word in this life. But as Christians, do we not worship a crucified Savior? Risen from the dead? So what does that tell us? It tells us that death in this world, it never gets the last word for those who are in Christ, for those who trust God's word. Like broken relationships in this world, it never gets the last word. Persecution from parents who don't trust God's word never gets the last word. Because the resurrection of King Jesus is true and his return is true, even in the face of all of these sufferings, it's worth it. What does Romans 8, 18 say? For I consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. A, a few hundreds of years later, Paul is reminding an ancient church in Rome that it's worth it. King Jesus is worth it. Believing in God's word about the true anointed king is worth it. It was worth it for Jonathan in reference to the foreshadowing of the true king, David. And it's worth it for ancient Roman Christians 2,000 years ago. Hearing Paul write to them about Jesus, the true, final, truer, and better anointed king, that it's worth it. 
because of the resurrection of King Jesus, God promises to provide in this life or the next or both, so it's worth it. Jonathan is no fool to trust God's word. Ancient Roman Christians, no fool to trust God's word. Madison Christians sitting in this room right now, no fool to trust God's word about the anointed king. See, in some ways, Jonathan is a model of what it means to be a disciple of King Jesus. To be a Christian, what did Jesus say? He says in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, Jesus, to his disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jonathan made the right choice by faith, but he did pay a price in this world. He probably never had a good relationship with his dad. He lost his friendship with David that was deep and profound. He didn't become king. He lost what what the world would say is success. But I have no doubt that as Jonathan entered eternity, he heard the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's worth it to risk your life for God's anointed king. Let me close with this. Many years ago, probably 11 years ago now, 12 years ago now, um, I and a few others, we we took our first exploratory trip um, to Morocco to figure out where our team there was going to land and what city to plant. It was a long trip, and I was gone a while. And when we got back, we had some of our neighbors over for dinner. And they were, from, they were here from Malaysia um, to do a graduate program at UW, and we got to know them. And he, is, uh, at least, was a, was a stated, confessed atheist. But we loved these, these neighbors of ours. They were sweet people. Had them over right when I got back from this trip. And just sharing with them, you know, what I've been up to, because I've been gone for like 10 days. And of course they noticed. And so I got to share a little bit about this trip and what it means to plant churches in, in a truly unengaged part of the world. And the price that I described that some of these believers pay when they become Christians and follow Jesus. And I'll never forget the wife, after I explained all this, having no context for Christianity or church planting or anything. Um, she looked at me and she said, why would they do all that? Like, it was just like, it just didn't compute that you would be willing to pay that price. And I remember just sitting there in the moment and not really sure what to say. And then I just finally said, because Jesus is worth it. And they just kind of sat there and looked at me and it's like, Okay. Um, but it's true. It's true. We see over and over again in the book of Acts, the reason why these guys, these first church planters, these first disciples laid down their lives was because they testified to the resurrection of King Jesus. If he's risen from the dead, and he is, it's worth it. It's worth it to, 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 to give your life for the nations so that God's glory can be cherished where there is no access. It's worth it. It makes sense. It's worth it 
to endure the persecution of your own father because God's word is true. So may that be so among us this morning. And I want to ask us this morning, do we believe this? Is it worth it? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for just the testimony that we have in your scriptures from hundreds and hundreds of years ago of the faithfulness of those that endure suffering for the sake of the anointed king. And may that be true of us as we move into the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.